You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We want to get people back to work. We've got to be paving the pathways. It is up to Congress to kind of set the rules of the road, but you have to wonder what Facebook's final objective is in that. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. If they just simply reopened the economy and returned everyone back to work, we would be, I think, in a better situation today. Washington may squander its best chance to make long overdue investments in our infrastructure. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden is wheels up on the way to Scranton, Pennsylvania to sell the agenda. He's actually there already. But we're still here in the bubble as Democrats knock heads over the very same issues in hopes of striking a deal on infrastructure and reconciliation by the end of this month. Still unclear if that's possible. But we'll talk about it next with Congressman Juan Vargas, Democrat from California, serves on the House Financial Services Committee. And as Republicans accuse Democrats of stoking inflation, we'll analyze the messaging around this with the panel later this hour. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. And later we'll dig into the COVID States Project, a new survey on governor's approval ratings in states with vaccine mandates and those without. And a distinct trend that we're seeing in the numbers. As we try to follow the bouncing ball here in Washington, specifically on Capitol Hill, with a perceived deadline of October 31st to complete infrastructure and reconciliation, Though Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York, chair of the House Democratic Caucus, says deadlines, not so much. This is President Joe Biden's agenda. The White House has indicated that they're not on a timeline. We're not on a timeline. We're just working uh, to arrive at the consensus that is clearly moving uh, in an incredibly positive direction to accomplish all of the policy objectives that are necessary uh, to deliver real relief to everyday Americans. So no timeline. Either way, as I told David Weston earlier today on Balance of Power here on Bloomberg Radio, there does appear to be new energy, a new urgency behind this latest round of negotiations. We have essentially been here before. But the details are emerging, and that's where we start with Congressman Juan Vargas, Democrat from California. Congressman, thank you for being with us. It's great to have you. We keep hearing little bites of news. Joe Manchin doesn't like a clean energy provision or child care may have to be cut down to fewer years. But big picture, how important is it for your district, for your constituents to get a deal this week? Well, I don't think it's necessarily important to get a deal this week, but to get a deal. Um, you know, I, I agree with Hakeem. You know, we're not on a timeline. 
uh, we're on a timeline for two things for sure, and that is the debt limit. We got to raise that thing by December for sure, and also a budget because we're going to have to either have an omnibus or a continuing resolution. But with respect to the infrastructure bill, and with respect also to what they call, um, you know, the build back better or whatever you want to call it, reconciliation. Although as a Catholic, yeah. I always think that's kind of funny to call it reconciliation. But anyway, long story short, there, um, we're not on a timeline. I mean, the truth of the matter is, let's get a good deal and then let's pass it. But we don't have to do it this week. If we did it this week, it would be best. But we don't have to do it this week. Is is the more time that passes, uh, to quote your colleague from New Jersey, Josh Gottheimer, who said, time kills deals. Does more time that passes make it more of a risk to see that bipartisan infrastructure bill get through the House? Uh, no. The bipartisan infrastructure bill is the one that I think is the easiest one to pass. Um, that, that's basically what everyone wants. The The harder part is to build back better because that has things that not everybody wants. And that, that's frankly why we have this fight. You know, not everyone's for the kind of health care that we're looking at and for the prescription drugs, you know, to, to reduce the price because some people, you know, are more on the pharma side. Yeah. But the issue of the infrastructure, well, that's the easy one. That, that could pass any time. So I, I don't think that there's a problem there. The problem really is trying to get something on the reconciliation side, on this Build Back Better. That's where the tough part is. I don't know what your priorities are when it comes to the reconciliation bill. We're talking about so many different items. To your point, uh, an expanded child tax credit, uh, universal pre-K, an expansion of Medicare, although we're hearing that Bernie Sanders may not get hearing, dental, and vision as he is hoping for. Are, are any of these worth lopping off? Or are any of these worth not fighting for so you can get everything else, Congressman? I guess I'm trying to get inside the room here with you to figure out what's important or, frankly, what's not as important. Sure, that's a great point. But the, the truth of the matter is we don't want to negotiate with ourselves, right? I mean, if you were to ask me right now, what does Manchin want? I said, yeah. okay, I kind of get it. I mean, he's yeah. from, you know, West Virginia. He doesn't want to mess with coal. He wants um, to make sure that his state still has, is viable. I get that. But when it comes to pre- prescription drugs, taxes, all these other things, I don't know exactly what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. So to say that we're going to you know, cut off the, you know, the universal pre-K or the dental eyes and ears for people on Medicare, who can't afford you know, their own dental care, I'm not prepared to, to say, okay, we're going to lop that off. Obviously, we're going to have to negotiate and lop something off. Yeah. But until we find out exactly what they are willing to do, it's like, what do you want? What are you guys willing to pay for and what are you not willing to pay for? Give us a list. Let's negotiate. Now, that is finally starting to happen. So is there anything and you're I, not willing to pay for? Something that's pie in the sky, you say, you know what, guys, this is too far. No, not for me. I mean, all, all the things that are on there, frankly, I mean, it, it's interesting because when you talk about these numbers, they sound gigantic, right? Well, yeah. It is you know, $3.5 trillion. Oh, my God. But it's over 10 years. If you take a look at it, an economist say, well, that's going to be about 1.2% of GDP, or it's going to be about 6% of your actual budget. Yeah. When you put it in that perspective, it doesn't look so big. I say, well, wait a minute. That, what do you mean? He says, yeah, that, that's all it is. I mean, the, the, the reality is we deal with humongous numbers. I mean, we're talking about our economy or we're talking about our budget. The reality is that we're going to spend over $10 trillion in the next 10 years on defense. So all of a sudden it's, wait a minute, okay, $350 billion. $2.5 doesn't seem so much when you're talking about at least $10 trillion. So, so again, the reality is it's a big number, but 
it could have been much bigger. There's a whole bunch of needs in the nation that if we really do want to build back better, and we sure. do. Well, you know, Republicans are glad to talk about numbers, and every time I speak with a Republican lawmaker, they they refer to that three and a half or even six trillion dollar number, and then they point to inflation, Congressman. I wonder if I can ask you about that. Republicans have turned this into a daily attack line against the Biden administration, mm-hmm. against against Democratic members of Congress. Today, it was Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York, of course, part of the Republican leadership. Listen to how she got into this. The average U.S. household now spends $175 more a month on food, fuel, and housing. That's over $2,000 a year. Right now, across America, we are hearing from our constituents about the skyrocketing gas prices that are up over 42 percent. Meats are up 12 percent at grocery stores. Eggs are up over 12 percent. Fresh fish and seafood are up over 10 percent. Electricity costs are up over 5 percent. And yet the Biden administration only sees these skyrocketing inflation numbers as, quote, high class problems. Another reference to Ron, uh, Ron Klain there. But, I, Congressman, it sounds like somebody's gone shopping. I just wonder, what's the re- response to that? Because I know the Biden administration says this legislation will actually lower inflation. In other words, that's why we need these bills. Republicans say it'll only make things worse. What's your take? That's, that's right. I mean, one of the things we have to uh, acknowledge is, we're coming out of a pandemic. I mean, we're still in it, but we're coming out of it. People want to buy things. I mean, I, I represent San Diego. We have a port, and I represent part of the port. Yes, the, the truth of the matter is we have a whole bunch of ships that are backed up. And why are they backed up? Because people now want to buy so many things because we weren't buying things for almost two years. So all of a sudden now we have the opportunity to do it. So now they have to run the ports at 724. You have to run them every day, 24 hours a day, to try to get all this stuff into the country. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, you're going to have inflation. There's no doubt about it. But it's going to be temporary. I mean, there are some things I think that are going to go up, but I think it's going to be ultimately a temporary issue. So, yeah, when you talk about it, we can also take a look at the at the uh, the uh, the Trump days. And say, well, he lost two million jobs, and you know, since um, Biden's been in office, he's created five million jobs. Well, yeah, but that's a little unfair too because of you know the pandemic, and now we have the boost because we're coming out of the pandemic. So when the Republicans make up these numbers and say, hey, look, this is horrible, the, the sky is falling, you know, put it in the context of we're coming out of a pandemic here when people haven't been spending money. Now they want to spend money. And so, yeah, you're, you're going to have inflationary, um, you know, you're going to have inflation. It's going to be over 2%. And, you know, we got to take a look at it. we got to make sure we don't um, you know, do things to make it worse. But at the same time, we also know it's going to be temporary. Well, I appreciate that. Context and, and politics I, I like- usually don't go together, Congressman. That's it's very big of you. Let me ask you about uh, the situation on the border because your district is uh, is sitting right on the border in in, in California in San Diego, and a lot of lawmakers talk about this from very different parts of the country as if they are experts. Well, you actually are there, and how much of a security worry is uh, the border right now? We have heard repeatedly. Uh, speaking of COVID, that infected people are coming over, and frankly, that that undocumented people who could become from any place in the world, in, including Afghanistan, could be crossing the border. Are, are those irresponsible sure. uh, messages for you, or is that actually happening? Completely irresponsible. So I live on the border. I've lived my whole life mostly on the border. I did study to be a priest for a while, so I, was, I left and was back east. But that being said, I spent most of my time on the border. San Diego, is one of the safest cities in the nation. 
it, it always comes up either one or two as the safest city. And the city of San Diego is right on the border. Mm-hmm. I invite you to come down. And people, when they come down, say, well, I thought that there would be crime everywhere. Yeah. Oh, that's the way they make it sound like on Fox News on purpose. But you come down there, it's a hell of a nice place. Is it a me. different matter it's in Arizona or Texas? Well, I, you know, I don't know those areas as well, just to be frank. I mean, I, I am an expert in California. I represent sure. the entire California-Mexico border. I mean, they can speak for themselves, so I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I don't think so personally, but I don't know. I can certainly speak for what I know, which is my district, which is the entire California-Mexico border. It is extremely safe. Again, San Diego, one of the safest large cities in the country. Um, you know, when I hear all these other people talking about crime in New York, <laughs> every year people talk about crime, I say, my God. Well, maybe invite them to California. I think I smell a remote broadcast here. We're putting in for the sound on remote from San Diego. I hope you'll meet us there. Congressman Juan Vargas, Democrat from California. Thanks for being here. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Headline on the terminal scale, back Biden plan risks weaker impact in midterm election. Boy, we're already looking ahead. To 2022, and we should be, as Mike Dorning writes, the move by Democrats to shrink the president's vision for the economy into a smaller package is turning to a debate over whether key benefits should be restricted to fewer needier families, potentially blunting both their impact and political support in suburban districts that will be battlegrounds in next year's midterms. A great piece of reporting, if you haven't already read it. And we want to bring in the panel on this. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us. Great to have both of you, as always. You just heard me talking to the congressman, Congressman Vargas from California, about inflation. I talked to Rick Scott about inflation yesterday, Republican from Florida. They do not agree, incidentally. But listening to the the messaging around this is fascinating to me. This was Rick Scott just yesterday, referring to the high-class problem that Ron Klain tweeted about here. This is going to hang over him, I guess, for some time. It was a retweet, by the way. High-class problem, said the, the chief of staff, when it comes to inflation and some of the things that we're thinking about. This is Rick Scott on Sound On. Food prices are up. Gas prices are up. People have to choose. Do I fill up my car to get to work? Or do I feed my kids? That's what's going on in this country. I mean, the Biden administration said it was a high-class problem. There it is. We're not talking about just Gucci bags going up. We're talking about milk going up, gas going up. Most of the economic problems we're facing, was the tweet, are high-class problems. 
Jason Furman, Harvard professor, tweeted that Ron Klain retweeted it at the White House. Then we just heard today Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. You heard at the top of the program. The Biden administration only sees these skyrocketing inflation numbers as, quote, <clears throat> high class problems. So, Rick Davis, when it comes to messaging like this, when the talking point cards go out, who's making these decisions? Where do they coalesce around a phrase like that? And is that going to be the phrase that sticks for the midterms? Yeah, well, uh, certainly every single one of these folks, whether it's Elise Stefanik or Senator Scott, have pollsters who work for them nonstop. Mm -hmm. And they're part of their campaign apparatus. And they're even part of their Senate and House uh, deliberations on policy. And everything is poll tested. And when they hear... Somebody like Ron Klain, the chief of staff, the president of the United States, retweet a, a comment that you know inflation is high class problem. You don't have to get the pullback from the field to know that that's going to be something you want to jump on. And so there, I'm sure those calls got going literally a nanosecond after that got yeah. retweeted. And it's like pounce on this. I mean, the Republicans have a great game plan. They're talking about immigration. They're talking about the new IRS rules. They're talking about green energy provisions. But they are also talking now today about inflation because the Biden administration has given them an opening. Whether it lasts the weekend, it doesn't even matter. This is going to drive news for the next 48, 72 hours. Okay. Jeannie, I want you to take a walk with me here on this one. I I am fascinated by this whole conversation. Take a walk back to, say, Hillary Clinton's campaign against Donald Trump. Remember this? You could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Oh, how many times did we hear right? that? Oh, yeah, right. That letter finished. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you yeah. name it. And unfortunately, there are people like that. Well, and people like Rick said who are polling on this stuff and turning it into talking points. How about President Obama? Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Wait for it. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Oh. Somebody else made that happen. You didn't build that basket of deplorables, high-class problem. Jeannie, this is how Washington works, right? It is. And, and since we want to make it bipartisan, let's not forget, like Mitt Romney's binders full of women, they've got them on both sides. Um, you know, I, I would just say that in this case, unlike in the case of Romney or Clinton or Obama, you have the chief of staff. So I think it's a, a real sort of um, error on his part to be retweeting. This is why sure. they say be very, very careful and stay off Twitter. This is not something that Joe Biden said. Right. This is something his chief of staff said. But, you know, let's take a step back. The Republicans want to frame themselves as concerned, and and many of them are, about people, you know, in the working class. But let's look at the policies coming forward. And this is what Democrats have to do. The one thing the Republicans did when they took the White House and had Congress is they passed tax cuts for the wealthy. You have Democrats here now, and it doesn't look pretty. It's a lot of sausage making. But what they are working on is trying to pull that back and to do the work that is needed for all Americans, including the lower and the middle classes. I mean, that's why we are debating things like extending the child tax credit, you know, 
issues involving paid family leave. So Democrats have to get back on their message, which is their focus is on the lower and the middle classes. The president has promised not to increase taxes above a certain amount. Mm -hmm. And Republicans can make this case about inflation. And I think inflation is critically important. But Democrats can respond to this and they have to show that they are really focused on inflation as well. High class problem, Rick. It's exactly the opposite of what Joe Biden is calling this as he travels to Scranton today. This is going to be a topic, but look, get Ron Klain off of Twitter. That's the number one job of the White House today. If you listen to this broadcast, you already know COVID vaccine mandates, or as the White House calls them, requirements, have become politicized. Listen to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We are going to stand for the men and women who are serving us. We are going to protect Florida jobs. We are not going to let people be fired because of a vaccine mandate. It goes over big for a Republican to push back on President Biden, who says, get out of my way. And it brings us to the COVID states projects on governor's approval ratings. Fascinating bit of research I want to talk about today with Alana Safapur, fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy. Alana, thank you for being here. We're looking at some pretty strong trends when it comes to the way these mandates or requirements, depending on how you want to call them, are actually impacting the governor's approval ratings. Can we start with what's happening in the state of Florida since we just heard from Ron DeSantis? How's it how's it cutting there? Sure, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for having me. So Florida is one of a couple of states that really exemplify a trend that we've seen across the country, which is that governors of states with prohibitions on vaccine mandates and in states that don't have vaccine mandates in place, they actually received the lowest approval rating um, on their handling of the pandemic. But in states with vaccine mandates, um, those governors actually receive significantly higher marks. So that's um, a real so trend here. Why Why then does a, does a Ron DeSantis assume it's good politics to oppose the mandate? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I think, honestly, we're one of the first teams to um, look at governor approval across um, state policies. So it, it yeah. might have been... Uh, did you find the Might same in Texas? Political calculation um, that they were just apparently wrong about. Um, Did you find the same in Texas? Yep, uh, we saw the same thing in Texas. So we've seen um, approval of state governors decline really across the board since June. It um, uh, governor and presidential approval has so far been tracking pretty closely with surge in cases um, associated with coronavirus. Um, so, so we did see a decline across the board, but we saw the steepest decline in states where um, public policies weren't in place to combat the virus. And so we saw, um, you know, in Florida and in Texas, that governor approval is very low, only about a third of state residents approved. And there was also a steep decline. So we saw a nine percentage point decline since our last survey conducted in June yeah. um, for both DeSantis and Abbott. Just to be clear, are these overall approval ratings that, that you're describing, Alana, or are these approval ratings on specifically how this governor or how these governors are handling COVID? 
Oh, it's um, thanks for clarifying that. that uh, these are approval ratings um, with respect to their handling of the pandemic. So, so they could be generally popular even with low marks on the pandemic. Is that fair to say? Um, it's possible. And, you know, we don't ask about overall governor approval ratings, but mm-hmm. we do ask about overall presidential approval rating and um, handling of the pandemic. And we've seen that those have, since we started our polling um, back in April 2020, that they do track quite closely. Um, so I think that the COVID approval is a decent yeah. barometer of where they stand. In How about in Virginia? I, sorry to interrupt, Alana. I ask you about Virginia because there's a big governor's race there, and I just wonder if it gives us any foreshadowing uh, into what we may learn in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so Virginia was kind of an interesting case. It was one of the states that um, bucked the trend. So Virginia has a requirement that state employees provide proof of vaccination or undergo weekly testing for COVID, and that was a um, mandate put in place um, September 1st. But we saw significant declines in um, Ralph Northam's handling of the pandemic from 64% who approved in June down to 49% who approved in September. Mm -hmm. Now, a possible explanation is that Virginians might not think um, that the state's vaccine mandate went far enough. So 77% of Virginians approve of requiring doctors and nurses to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, considering the state doesn't currently require this, this may be one avenue for Northam or for the current gubernatorial candidates to increase support um, among Virginians by requiring medical professionals to get vaccinated. And I should also note that nationally, um, 75% of Americans support this policy. So this is this high support is not anomalous at all for Virginians. This is really something that we've seen across the board. And, and we've seen a lot of... Um, States controlled by Democrats do um, have enacted vaccine mandates for healthcare workers, and in those states, we actually saw less of a decline in approval associated with the Delta surge. So, Lana, are there are there trends when it comes to parties? I think there is a general perception that Republican governors don't like mandates, and Democrats do. Is that unfair? Uh, that's that's not unfair at all. <laughs> that's that's so a, that's what that's you found. Summary. Mm-hmm. We do we do find that Republican governors of um, Historically blue states uh, do do have vaccine mandates in place. You know, we, we see that in Maryland, yeah. for instance, and a couple other states like that. But in, in general, yes. Uh, She's a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Alana, thank you for being with us and helping to digest these numbers. Coming up, we reassemble the panel. Rick and Jeannie, as I mentioned, with us for the hour as President Biden leaves Washington. Yeah, we're going back to Scranton. My name is Joe Biden. I am Jill Biden's husband and Gene Finnegan's son. I'm from 2446 North Washington Avenue, and I'm happy to be home. Well, that's how we do it in Scranton. Where did you forget? You know, it's presumptuous for me to say home. I know so many people you know are from Scranton. It sure seems like it. Is anyone here not from Scranton? Don't raise your hand. We'll talk to Jeannie and Rick next as we reassemble the panel on Sound Off. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So, yeah, it's on to Scranton, Pennsylvania. President Biden heading back to his childhood home to make the case for his economic agenda. And as usual, asked about it by reporters as he was making his way from the Oval Office 
to Marine One, the helicopter buzzing there on the south lawn, and he did stop at the rope line for a moment when asked if there's going to be a deal here on infrastructure, reconciliation, his overall economic agenda. What's the deal, Mr. President? You all never believed from the beginning to ever get anything done. I think we'll get a deal. I'm not sure everyone believed that, but there you have it. And making a speech now uh, to his former towns members. Went to Scranton a couple times during the campaign as well. Speaking before an American flag, he's got the suit on and doing his thing as we bring the panel back. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, Jeannie, is this effective as Republicans, and we talked about this earlier in the hour, try to attack President Biden on inflation, try to tie him to higher prices and talk about that high class problem that Ron Klain retweeted. Going back to the old town, talking to those working class people, is that an effective strategy? You can't go wrong going to Scranton, especially if you're Joe Biden. So this is a good day for Joe Biden. Look, at we saw these meetings yesterday. I think everybody that came out of them seemed a lot more optimistic that they were closer to a deal than perhaps anybody recognized. The president, I think, is moving in the right direction now that he is making a much more reasonable pitch at, you know, between $1.75 and $1.9 trillion. Obviously, it depends on what's in and out and we're starting to hear that but the president is doing what the president has to do he's got to use the power of the bully pulpit we saw him doing that yesterday arm twisting these you know senators and representatives and going out to the public today in scranton and making the case for this bill and what i'm hoping that we hear more of and i think we're starting to is not just the top line but what it's going to do for the people of scranton and the people across the country that's what the president has got to focus on so i think he's got to feel at least better about where he is today than where he was, say, 48 hours ago. Are you rolling your eyes here, Rick, or would you tell President Biden to go to Scranton, make the case there? You know, I think this is just convenient. I mean, Pennsylvania is a great place to go. The the any area around that Lehigh Valley in Scranton, you know, is a swing uh, area in the state. Uh, he's got his eye on not just the midterms, but also on the uh, elections in 2024. So, sure, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt Scranton. It lets him be you know, Uncle Joe again, which we haven't Mm. seen Uncle Joe show up in a long time. And Mm. that was the whole theme of today's talk. But bottom line is, I think they're really focused on democratic politics, right? How do we push this over the line? How do we take credit for it with these constituents in places like Scranton? They can ignore the Republicans. They don't need their votes for any of this stuff. They they can let them just go out and, and try to define this their way. But this is a Democrat issue. Uh, they're going to go to Democrat places and, and they're going to talk like Democrats uh, to try and get support for this and make Democrats in the House and the Senate feel comfortable with this. That is the number one job that Joe Biden's got to do. And That's as right. Jeannie said, he's got the bully pulpit to do it. He used the White House and the Oval Office to try and get everybody backed off of their hardcore positions. And I think they've been successful. And so now it's a matter of running to the finish line. His operatives on the Hill are working to get a deal while he goes out and sells it to the American people. I haven't heard him be called Uncle Joe in a while. He must miss that. Not, not to mention Amtrak, Joe. In the Build Back Better plan, I got more money for passenger rail than the entire Amtrak system cost to begin with. He's speaking right now, Jeannie. It's, it's interesting, as we heard yesterday, uh, Senator Rick Scott was on the program. I interviewed him on Capitol Hill, and he talked about growing up poor. What his poor grandmother would have said about this inflation, these high prices. That used to be Joe Biden's act. 
That's right. That That's right. And, you know, the, I, I do believe that the president has tried to talk about this issue of inflation. His hands, as we've talked about, are a bit tied in terms of what he can do. But you know, I think it's unfortunate the retweeting on Ron Klain's part. Democrats have got to know that it that's what hits people in the pocketbook. When you go into the grocery store, I was just there the other day, and the shelves are less full. When you go to buy a car and there's less to be offered and the prices are higher, these are things that hit all people, not just the wealthy. Democrats know that the president's got to get back on that message, but he's also got to sell this Build Back Better plan, and he's out there trying to do that. Rick Davis, uh, President Biden also needs to sell a couple of ambassadors to the United States Senate, beginning with uh, Nicholas Burns, the president's nominee to be U.S. ambassador to China. Burns calls for a mix of competition and cooperation. The headline on Bloomberg, he was asked uh, in his hearing today in the United States Senate about the Wuhan lab. The Chinese government withheld information very clearly from their own people and the rest of the world for about a month in late December and January of 2020. I have consistently criticized the Chinese government for that, and they deserve to be criticized. And they've been stonewalling all of us around the world since January of 2020. He said Beijing exploits trade rules at the expense of American business and workers, intimidates its neighbors, and is smothering democracy in Hong Kong. Is he he hitting all the right notes? Because there has been some Republican pushback on this nomination, Rick. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've talked about that on this show many Rick times. Rick Davis is still with us? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm Sorry, here. that's on me. Go ahead, Rick. Oh, gosh. All right. <laughs> um, well, anyway, uh, the one unifier on Capitol Hill is bashing China. Uh, Republicans do it. Democrats do it. He's got to get right with some of these votes. Uh, it'll it'll resonate with people like Ted Cruz who have been putting holds on these folks. So I think he I think he took a very aggressive tone. And that is mm-hmm. the, the the sharp point of the spear within the Biden administration right now on their treatment of China. They're pushing back hard. Yeah. And I think that that echoes their policy. But also it, it, it echoes a lot of support within the Republican Party who want to see a more aggressive approach by the Biden administration. Sorry, I missed your couple of words there. Does does this move the Ted Cruz's, though, or, or there's always going to be some pushback on a nomination from Joe Biden? You know, it, it, he's always going to push back on some nominations by Joe Biden, although he did not uh, put a hold on Cindy McCain, who got voted out of <laughs> uh, committee last night <laughs> and uh, got hotlined for the floor today. So there will be progress, but uh, not everybody can be Cindy McCain. And so that is on true. issues like this and 30 other ambassadors, Ted Cruz has been a problem. And I think the administration is going to have to figure out that they just got to run these through regular order, bypass the hold and let uh, let let Majority Leader Schumer really run roughshod on the floor of the Senate to get these nominations actually cleared. Shouldn't stop them from becoming ambassadors because they have the ways and means to do it. Uh, but uh, but they got to say that that's what that's what they're going to use floor very valuable floor time to do. We do need an envoy to Beijing at, at this point in the game here, Jeannie. Just a couple of days ago, we were talking about this hypersonic missile that nobody knew about in August. And, and God knows we've had some issues uh, from everything from investing, as I mentioned, to, to geopolitics between President Xi and Biden. It, it's time to, to pick someone here, no? It absolutely is. And, you know, Ted Cruz trying to hold these up is no surprise. But, you know, when you look at the state of our relations with China, you would think this is something that regardless of party, all of these centers would want to get somebody in place and over there giving, as you just mentioned, not just the missile, but all of the other challenges we face vis-a-vis 
China. So, you know, this is in the interest of the entire United States, not just the Democratic Party. And I agree with Rick that Biden is going to just have to figure out a way and, and let Chuck Schumer do his thing to get these people through. But it's certainly in the best interest of everybody. So you both see that being approved. Am I am I reading you both right before I move on, Rick? Yes. That Burns will ultimately be yes. confirmed. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So is Rahm Emanuel a different story? Right. The former Chicago mayor apologizing essentially today uh, says that that not a day or week has gone by. He hasn't thought about the police shooting of Laquan McDonald in 2014 when he was Chicago mayor. He, of course, has quite a bit of baggage from his time in Washington as well. Rick, does he go to Japan? Yeah, he will likely not get the courtesy that many of these appointees are going to get from Republicans in, in the Senate. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think his nomination could be uh, a, a problem because the question is, can he even have the votes to get out of committee? And uh, and that'll be the real question for Rahm Emanuel. He's the one politician everybody loves to hate right now and uh, and probably amply qualified for the job. But uh, huh. but politics is just not going to pull his way. But look, I mean, it just depends upon what 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 the costs are going to be to the Biden administration. But but Ted Cruz won't be the first guy that puts a hold on that nomination. Yeah. Well, put Chicago aside for a minute, Jeannie, just his time in Washington alone. Rahm Emanuel has had a lot of years to ruffle a lot of feathers. He has. And talk about unfortunate timing. The fact that this hearing was held on, you know, the seventh year anniversary of this killing. I mean, you know, and and of course, Bob Menendez, the chair of the committee, asked him for his, you know, to gave him an opportunity, I should say, to respond. And he did. And it was heartfelt. But to your point, it's not just about this. This was obviously a very important issue. But he has made plenty of, you know, sort of ruffled feathers, made plenty of enemies in Washington over the years. And, you know, he is a figure that people do love to hate. So I think he my my view is that he might make it through. But I think this is going to be touch and go. But he is somebody who is qualified for this. But, you know, he's got to live with the baggage of his background and what he's done in Washington and elsewhere throughout his career. Is it just me, Rick, or after all these approvals take place, nobody remembers them again, unless something big blows up, and China could be an exception there. But my goodness, are we going to be complaining about Ambassador? Will anyone be complaining about Ambassador Emmanuel of Japan in a couple of months? No, I mean, Japan is a place you go to disappear. Although, one of the more recent Japanese ambassadors is now a United States senator from Tennessee. So they can be forgotten, but they could always make a comeback. (laughs) And God knows he's done that before. Rick Davis, Jeannie Shianzano, our Bloomberg Politics contributors. We thank you as ever. I'm Joe Matthew. Meet you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.